0: Hello and welcome to one of a series of podcasts exploring key issues or areas of interest in impact evaluation today. We hope you enjoy the podcast and please don't forget to tweet your thoughts at hashtag Impact Thank you for listening. I'm Imelda Bates, I'm a Professor of Clinical Tropical Haematology at the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine. But the reason that I'm contributing to this podcast is because I also head up a research team at a centre called the Centre for Capacity Research. So we generate evidence, and do research around research systems in low and middle income countries with a particular focus on Africa. So I've been doing capacity strengthening in Africa for 35 years or so. I used to live in West Africa and all of my research is based mostly in Africa, although I'm physically sitting in Liverpool.
1: Hello, I'm David Phipps. I am the Assistant Vice President Research Strategy and Impact at York University in Toronto in Canada. And I'm also the network director for a network we call Research Impact Canada, which is 21 universities who are all collaborating on methods and um, processes to help our researchers and students and their partners work together to be able to maximize the impacts of their research.
2: And finally, we have Catherine Wright, who is the Assistant Director at the Nafil Council on Bioethics and was responsible for the Council's latest project looking at how research can be conducted ethically in global health emergencies, which made a number of recommendations to funders, in particular as to how they could do more to support ethical research. She is also on the advisory board to the REACH project, which brings together researchers in Kenya, South Africa, Thailand and the UK to look at critical gaps in ethics guidance for responsible research with women, children and families in low-income settings. Hello and welcome to one of the four podcasts discussing various aspects of impact frameworks and cultural change. My name is Saumu Lwembe, and I'm a Senior Program Manager at the National Institute for Health Research. Today, we will be discussing issues surrounding the impact and impact assessment of global health research. I'm joined by three discussants who have a wide range of expertise in impact frameworks, knowledge mobilization, and ethics of impact assessment. Their contribution will undoubtedly help shed light on some of the issues that the NIHR and other global health research funders might need to consider when it comes to impact assessment in global health research. So Imelda, uh, perhaps I could start with you. Uh, Please tell us about your work on strengthening research capacity and laboratory systems in low- and middle-income countries. What does that involve in particular?
0: Well, we actually do work on strengthening systems, not just for laboratories, but also research systems. And we use a similar approach for both, in that we work very closely with partners on the ground and we have a focus on the institutions. So capacity uh, systems are generally thought of in three levels. One is the individual levels, and in research systems that would be the researchers and the research teams. And then we think about the institutional level, which is organisations and institutions where researchers work. And then we have the societal level, which is a sort of broad level that includes the network of researchers and research users. So we always think about those three levels to start with. But our research focuses on the institutions because they're in the middle of those three levels so they're influential up and down the system and we've realized a long time ago that um, the evidence to support how you actually do research capacity strengthening was very weak and although a lot of funders are putting lots of investment into building research capacity the evidence to guide the different models and to see which ones were most effective and to measure the impact of those models and where the investments were going, the evidence was very poor and virtually non-existent. So for the last 10 years plus, we have been trying to generate better evidence about how you can build capacity to do better research and to set up essentially the research systems and strengthen them. So that's the the broad way that we approach things. And then we do practical projects where we actually work with institutions. We um, talk to them about what their goal is for their institution in terms of capacity, where they want to be over the next five or 10 years. And then we use a standard approach. We have a five-step approach that we always use when we do these capacity strengthening programs. And after we've defined the goal, we then carry out an assessment against a benchmark and then we find the gaps all together with the partners on the ground and then we develop joint action plans and then we move into a sort of normal project cycle where we implement the action plans, develop indicators to see how they're progressing and then advance and change the action plans as the capacity is slowly built over time. So that's the theory. In practice, there's lots and lots of challenges, which I'm sure we will come on to discussing later. But every different programme that we work with enables us to learn more, to generate new evidence and to publish because we use the same tools and the same approach, no matter what the capacity um, assessments are that are needed. So whether it's for, for example, a A laboratory that's testing insecticides and now wants to become an accredited certified laboratory, or whether it's a school of public health that might want to set up an excellent program for their early career researchers. So we can use the same approach, the same tools across all those different contexts, which is really helpful because it enables us to learn much more quickly than we could if we were just dipping in and out of various projects with different tools and methods.
2: So you you did mention uh, about the five-step approach uh, to capacity strengthening programs. Uh, Do you mind shedding more light on that?
0: On paper, they sound very simple. So the first thing which we found was often almost completely neglected was to sit with the partners on the ground and work out the goal of their capacity strengthening project. Where did they want to go? What did they want to be? What was their vision for their new laboratory or for their new school of public health? So we sit down and w- with them and work out with them exactly what it is. And we write it down. What does that new capacity look like? What will they be able to do in five years that they can't do now? And then we try and map out a pathway to achieve that it's a a bit like a theory of change or a logic model. And that actually takes quite a lot of time because people often haven't thought in depth about what they want and how they're going to get there. And then when we've got that vision mapped out and documented, we then look around in the literature and through our own resources, which are now very huge, to see if we've got a framework or a benchmark that we can use to then go in and do an assessment with those partners on the ground. And it's really important to have a benchmark because none of us um, know everything about such a complex situation. So we have to trawl through the literature, talk to experts, look at published frameworks and standards, and then bring all that together to design a benchmark that we can then use when we go and do an assessment. For laboratories, that's much easier because there are very good standards. There's ISO standards, certification standards. So for laboratories, it's much easier to have a benchmark. For research systems, we've um, because we've done so many now, we've done, I don't know, 30, 40 institutional assessments of research capacity. We've now developed a, a sort of master benchmark, which we can pick and choose from when we go and do assessments on the ground. So the first step is to set out the goal. The second step is then to go and do this assessment using a benchmark. And then once we've done the assessment, we can identify gaps. So then the next step is to turn those gaps into an action plan to fill the capacity gaps. And interestingly, no matter what the setting is, what project it is, we found that about two thirds of the gaps can be filled using no resources at all or very little resources. So, for example, it might require new policies to be drawn up or student handbooks to be produced or uh, PhD seminars to be instituted. So many of those gaps can be set up without external funds. And then that's really helpful because it leaves about a third of the activities needing some sort of external support. So it helps the institutions to focus their, for example, grant applications or their applications to government for additional funding for very targeted activities that they have identified. So along with the action plans, we work with the partners on the ground to identify indicators that we can use to measure as time goes on to see how those gaps are being filled That's also quite a time-consuming step in this five-step process because often the indicators are difficult to measure. They might well be quantitative rather than qualitative. And so sometimes we need to invest in particular skills, people with special skills, in order to be able to collect good quality data against the indicators. And then the final step, the fifth step, is to review the action plans see what's been achieved, what gaps have been filled, revise um, the plan so that we bring in new gaps to address and so it then becomes a rolling cycle of monitoring, tracking, introducing new activities and so essentially that, that can go on for many years or it could be short and sharp in which case it's obviously much more difficult to measure outcomes and impact but at least we know that our partners are on a trajectory to achieving the capacity that they set out in the first place in their goal.
2: David, as an expert practitioner in impact assessments, how do you think it will be possible to assess the impact of such work like EMEL does? What are the kind of things that we should be mindful of?
1: Well, thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you, Amelda, for uh, presenting the project that you, uh, that you have ongoing. I think um, I would be delighted to work with Imelda in the future on on collecting the evidence of impact. First off, um, because she said a very important thing that she said she number one identified indicators which, number one identified partners, engaged with them, understood the gaps, identified, put in action plans, identified indicators. Those are very important and. And then talked about the time, possibly over years, that it would take to be able to collect the evidence of impact. So I think um, Imelda's project is well set up and she's she's conceptualized um, a lot of the elements that are required to be able to collect the evidence of impact. You will note that I have not said impact assessment. Um, That is a a very assessment-driven paradigm with the UK's Research Excellence Framework driving those concepts. I I don't like to talk about assessment. I like to talk about collecting and communicating the evidence of impact because it is less about your good and your bad. That's an assessment. And it's more about how do we know if change has happened? And and, um, one of the the things that we we see in assessments is that it's often the university or the researcher that's being assessed But it's not the researcher who's making the impact. It's not the researcher that's making products. Industry does that. And the researcher is not developing policy. Government does that. And the researcher isn't delivering social services. Those are done by community organizations. So we need to go to those people where the impact is being felt or on whom the impact is being made, because those are the people from whom we collect the evidence of impact. Um, Impact happens when research it, it's, it's The outcomes of research are peer-reviewed and they're published and that's great. And that, those have impacts, scholarly impacts, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is when research is taken up by an organization that can do something about it. And if they take it up, they're going to evaluate it and they're going to say, if it's any good, then they're going to implement those that research evidence into a policy or a product or a service. And ultimately, it's that policy or product or service that has an impact on on the end users. So when the gaps are identified in Imelda's research when action plans are... are, um, And then those gaps, um, the action plans are developed and taken up by the the partner university and then implemented those action plans. And then Imelda, over time, can see if if, um, these indicators are telling that they're working. I think that um, I also... Like to say when we're thinking about collecting the evidence of impact that we use mixed methods, so it's qualitative and quantitative uh, measures that we're looking at. And Imelda's um, Imelda's indicators are likely both quantitative and qualitative. So, if we think of a a research office, and I happen to run a research office at a university, then we we want to get the stories of successful practices and the stories of successes. But we also want to look at the annual reports, we want to look at the research income over time, we want to look at um, at how many you know partner organizations? So we have been engaged. So we want to have both qualitative and quantitative indicators. But what Amelda illustrates very well is that she, with her five um, her five steps, is that she thinks about this from the beginning. Is she doesn't start a project in, unless she's got a good conceptualization of how to plan for that impact. And it's that planning for the impact that ultimately is in going to engage partners and within the partners who are the individual stakeholders to be interviewed and ultimately interview, and co- interview for qualitative data and collect documents for quantitative data. And the, that is the evidence of the impact that is experienced by the partner organizations.
2: I think arguably we could say that impact assessment of UK uh, research is well established or well understood. Uh, Actually, let's say impact assessment of research uh, within the global North is well established, well understood, and arguably not done very well, but done within a non-context. Is impact assessment within a global health context well established, understood, or done very well? Um, Work like what Imelda does, do you think?
1: Uh, I, I would... Again, I'm going, I'm going to guess here because I certainly haven't done a systematic review of, um, of lower middle income country impact s- schemes. Um, let me first comment that I think the REF is well understood. I don't think that impact of research is necessarily well understood and REF is only one example of ways to go about that. Um, I think that the more that we get funding programs um global health research funding programs that are focused on the benefits to the, um, lower and middle income country, um, end users. And the more we get researchers like Imelda who understand these processes that, um, we will increasingly see good, um, structures to collect and communicate the evidence of impact. But, um, the impact assessment in in industrialized nations, as exemplified by the REF, I think, is only one way of conceptualizing of conceptualizing impact assessment.
2: Okay, so uh, Catherine, uh, building on your expertise and years of experience in research ethics. What do you think are the ethical issues um, around this particular area of work?
3: I think a little bit like David, I'd like to start by pushing back a little bit on on, on the language and in particular by probing how we think about ethics. Because I think for a lot of listeners, the word ethics is synonymous with ethical review or possibly getting through ethics or the hurdle of ethics or other perhaps less complementary descriptions. And I'd like to suggest that really research ethics need to be seen much more holistically as being about the values that underpin the whole enterprise of, of research from start to finish. And if we think about ethics in that much broader way, that's got real implications for who we think of as being responsible for research ethics So we think about researchers and ethics committees as having this particular role. But if we think about ethics in this much more broad value-based way, I think that also brings in the role of funders and research institutions um, and publishers and so forth. And it's been really interesting. I think it's a real privilege of being the third speaker, hearing some of the examples that Imelda and David gave of seeing, seeing that flow out of the descriptions they gave. So I suggest I think a key ethical issue that underpins research that's been carried out in a low-income country, either in partnership with high-income researchers or funded by a a, a funder from a high-income country or or both, is thinking about whose voices are being heard all the way through. So starting with the question of what research is actually taking place, about who prioritised it, about whose interests and perspectives are held to matter, and then thinking about the impact and what's what's really making a difference. And I think it was really great to hear Imelda describing that process of sitting down and setting goals together, because in some of the work we've done at the Nuffield Council, looking at research, how research takes place in emergencies, for example, you know we hear accounts of how people want to have equitable partnerships, but in practice, because of the way funders have very short timescales or because of other pressures, effectively, the high-income partner ends up setting many of the parameters, only bringing low-income researchers in later. And I think it's that sense of how you... You know, as it were, sit down together to do that kind of process and make sure it is a genuinely joint endeavour. Um, there is a fundamentally ethical question about about this kind of research. I was really struck um, when I was preparing for this podcast, looking at the the global health NIHR global health principles and how those emphasise both equitable partnerships and community engagement. I thought I thought that was really important to see that set out there. And I think that sort of the next level challenge is thinking about how actually the, the procedures any funder uses can either facilitate or, or perhaps act against those kind of principles. And then moving specifically onto this idea of, of impact. And I think your focus on impact, impact is, again, an, an ethical imperative because we shouldn't be doing research if we're not aiming, aiming to, uh-huh. to make a difference. We're asking our research participants to give us time and energy. And we need to actually make sure that it does make a difference and think who is making a difference for and the extent to, again to which those voices are are coming into play. and then there's something I was delighted to hear David talking about in terms of thinking about actually who who does what afterwards, that researchers create evidence, but what happens after that, who's going to take it on? And I' would suggest another sort of ethical consideration of research from the beginning is thinking about who is the buy-in from governments, from research institutions, um, you know, to fund in a sustainable way um, the, the, the beneficial practices that have been identified through the research. Again, I was very struck by, by Imelda's point that actually two thirds of, of, of what's found in her, um, 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 her projects actually can be implemented without extra funding, you know, and that's, I think that's a very positive um, thing to hear, but still thinking about that other third, um, is, is there buy-in from the start? Can we be convinced it's going to have that kind of impact, or at least at least have a good hope? Um, and then, I mean, coming back to ethical review, because I think it, it is important to to, to recognise that's an important part of the process. Um, I think you know, at best it can improve research by highlighting issues that haven't been thought about. But I think in practice, if the the ethical review process itself is not well managed or is not well funded, and that will often be the case, it can seem disproportionate and unhelpful, and that can give ethics a bad name in a way that is really, I think, very unhelpful all around. So I think actually focus on actually how those processes can be made more responsive both by ethics committees and by researchers themselves taking this broader view of ethics, could be immensely helpful.
2: So uh, I was quite struck at your point that ethics um, should be everyone's business (laughs) and include all voices. And I I quite agree with that, rightly so. Um, But my question is, in in a context of global emergencies like the COVID-19 pandemic that we are all experiencing, how does one reconcile the tensions between a rapid impact assessments and the need to meaningfully involve all voices, especially those of the communities and patient groups, which we know takes time and resources?
3: Absolutely. I mean, that's that, that's the the, the absolute sort of classic challenge, I think, of research in, in emergencies. And actually, ironically, the Nuffield Council um, actually published a report on this three days before COVID was declared to be a public health emergency of international concern. And we drew heavily on on the experiences of, of, of Ebola in West Africa as part of our part of our work. Um and I think the bottom line is about one has to keep these values there, but one has to be pragmatic about how they're implemented. So on the community engagement side, and part of our project was talking to um those who were involved in doing community engagement in Liberia during the Ebola outbreak. Um and the person we, we spoke to there kept talking about the need to learn and adapt, learn and adapt. You can't actually start with a shiny new um community engagement setup before you st- before you start, because there isn't time, but you have to actually build the research in a way that there is space to to listen and then to change in response to that um, that input. And in fact, it was highlighted then. I think one of the most dangerous things is to sort of start asking people for input and then say, "Sorry, it's too late. We can't change that," because that's highly disrespectful of the kind of input you have. But I think, I mean, what was striking in the Liberian context is really quite how the community engagement there. Actually turned around what was a very distrustful approach to research to actually very successful vaccine research. So I think it's one, engaged community engagement isn't just a, a nice to have an emergency, it's actually actually an essential.
2: Um, so David, um, picking on your work on impact literacy, firstly, can I ask, what does impact literacy really mean?
1: Certainly. Impact literacy is a concept that I developed with Julie Bailey from the University of Lincoln. Impact literacy is a state of knowing. If we understand how to create impacts from research. So I want you to imagine a Venn diagram. And if one of the bubbles is how, how, if we understand how to create impacts from research, and if the other bubble is what, and then if we understand what those impacts are, and, and, and the methods to collect the evidence of impact. And then the third uh, bubble of the Venn diagram is who. Who are the people that are doing this work and what are the skills that we need? So if we understand how to create impact, if we understand what that impact is occurring, and we understand who the people are and the skills that we need, the intersection of those three we call impact literacy.
2: So are there any gaps or areas of improvement in knowledge mobilization in a global health research context that we need to pay particular attention to?
1: I, I think we've covered it a lot with Imelda's um, presentation, so I'll just reflect on some of those. I think the question, first question on um, collecting the evidence of impact, and I've already mentioned it, is who's doing this work? Who is collecting the evidence of the impact? And reflecting on what Catherine has said, is which are the voices that need to be heard throughout? So stakeholder engagement, um, engaging our our lower and middle income country partners and the stakeholders in those jurisdictions, engaging them just as a consultation group is not a very authentic way of um, of engaging. So incorporating um, p- those voices as co-applicants, engaging them throughout the research, and then um, then having someone embedded in those systems to be able to uh, understand where the evidence is and how to authentically in the right right voice, interview some of those subjects. So one question is who is doing that work? Um, Another question that I have in this space, because it's one thing to get impact arising from a particular funded piece of research, and that's very important, but that's not often the, the, the only potential. If we discover through a a piece of research and intervention in one city in a lower middle income country, well, whose job is it to scale that through other cities so that the impacts of research can be scaled and felt in other jurisdictions throughout that country or through other countries. So whose job is that? That's a piece that is often um, not thought through very carefully. And, um, and, then, and then I would say we've got a couple of gaps. Um, one gap is, and I see this in a lot of funding, is we, if we draw a pathway to impact, we tend to fund activities in the boxes. What we don't fund is the arrows between those boxes and the arrows, how you move from one stage to another in your impact pathway. That's the knowledge mobilization. It's helping mobilize that knowledge down the pathway. So we have to think about funding those arrows as well as funding the boxes. Um, I think also um, that we talked to to Catherine talks a little bit about this was, is there funding for those pieces in Imelda's program that can't be um, that can't be implemented with little or no funding? So what does follow on funding like? And is it really funding to the researcher? who is often not in the, in the lower middle income country, or is there, are we now actually looking at funding the implementation of that evidence so that it can have an impact? And that would be funds going to the partner organization. And then finally, just echoing what Catherine said, uh, making sure we know whose voices need to be heard throughout the process.
2: Melda, I know you've you've mentioned uh, in your previous conversation around some of the challenges that uh, you face, but I want to explore that a bit more. Um, So what would you say has been the main challenge for you in in research capacity strengthening in global health? And in particular, are there any tensions between funder practices vis-a-vis the reality of capacity strengthening work on the ground?
0: So our main end users, apart from the organisations that we're working with in the low and middle income countries, are research funders. And the reason they're very important end users for us is because we're generating learning all the time about how to fund research capacity strengthening programmes, what models work well, and particularly these different models have an influence on the research culture within institutions, which is becoming increasingly... um, commonly focused on now so one of our main challenges has really been to encourage the funders to use the evidence that there is although it's not very robust there's not a lot of evidence about how to build research capacity there is some and it's increasing rapidly and we really would like to encourage funders to use that evidence to guide how they design programmes and how they invest in them. And a huge part of that is how they plan for impact from the start, exactly as David has mentioned and Catherine's also mentioned, bringing in all the stakeholders. So I think funders are very influential in how these programmes can be done better, but they're not really using that influence. They're not picking up the evidence as fast as I think they could and they're not incorporating it into their calls and also they're not really providing the sort of standard of, of guidance and resources that would help researchers and research teams to build research capacity and to support others to do that and I think I'm When I talk about research teams, I really do mean that research is generated by more than just researchers. There are people who are absolutely critical to generating research, such as program managers, the grant accountants, laboratory technicians, they're all a key part of the research system, but they're really overlooked and neglected in terms of project training and courses and opportunities. So again, it it, build on what Catherine and David were both saying about having to take this holistic view and to try and encourage funders to be the, the sort of guiding light for setting very good standards for doing research capacity strengthening programmes. So that's one of my main challenges I think is, is encouraging funders to use this to build better programmes And one of the other key challenges is that there are very few people actually generating evidence about how to build research systems and how to strengthen them. And those researchers are fragmented across the globe. We have a network, but it's a bit tenuous. They publish in all sorts of different uh, journals. Because it crosses sectors, we can learn from education, we can learn from natural sciences. Um, So I think the fragmentation of research is, is also problematic. So, trying to get together a community of researchers and practitioners who are interested in generating evidence around these pathways to impact for research would be really, really helpful.
2: Catherine, um... You did mention earlier on um, an observation that uh, is, is something that uh, we, we've observed as well. And as NHR an trying to address that, uh, the tendency for high income partners to set up uh, priorities and then bringing LMIC partners later. And I want to explore that a bit and, and especially um, the issue on shifting the gravity in addressing power inequalities in global health research is coming up quite a lot uh, in many conversations. Um, So what are your views on this, especially from an ethics angle? Both these
3: points about the responsibility of funders and then how we long term shift the center of gravity as it were um, not only for leading the research but even funding the research to the place where research is taking place, you know I think these are at the, the sort of heart of our uh, of, of what it is to conduct ethically conduct research ethically in the in these circumstances so i'd really like to echo some of the comments Imelda was making. it's a real pleasure to hear both the point she's making and the the description of the research she's done, but in terms of thinking about you know how funders Test themselves. I think about the the, the way their the sort of the the day to day cogs of their of their practices actually make it possible or make it difficult for these partnerships to be genuinely equitable. Because I think you can start off with a great intention that a project will be equal and a, there'll be a call for you know a, a partnership and so on. But then because of you know, practice, practicalities of of timescales, because on the whole in high income countries you're much more likely to have the funded time to be able to you know turn around applications quickly and so on. It can with the best will in the world, it can end up being led primarily from 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 the richer country institutions. So I think it's really thinking about all the the what appear not to be ethical practices at all. They're day-to-day um, nuts and bolts of, of of funding practice, but actually they can make a real difference in in how ethically the research is conducted. And we could apply that to things like peer review processes for um, applications and so on as well. You know, who's involved in those? How much time they have to turn them around? Um, I also wanted to pick up one of the things that, that David was saying about you know looking to sort of future sustainability. So I think again that picks up to this idea of shifting the centre of gravity. Um, you know, that Imelda pointed out that you know, about two-thirds of what can be done, what's identified in one of the the assessments she does or the, the capacity strength exercises she does can be changed locally and um, without the need for extra funding. But then you you have to apply for funding for the remaining third. If that carries on being program funding, if that's external funding, that's not going to make And this this long term shift, I think it's about getting buy in from from governments, but also about longer term thinking about how um, institutions in low income countries can apply directly for funding without having to rely on partnerships and so on. And then ultimately looking at, I mean, for example, the African Academy of Sciences, I know, has partnerships with, with Wellcome, whereby some of Wellcome's funding is actually directed through the African Academy of Sciences. I think it's looking longer term over those kind of partnership models among funders, too, that will gradually make this kind of change.
2: How best can we support or promote an impact culture in global health research? I think really it's just to reiterate
0: what has been said before. I think one is to plan from the start for impact. And that doesn't just mean in some sort of nebulous, non-specific way. It means actually sitting down and thrashing out how you're going to get from A to Z. What is the goal? Where are you now? And what are the steps that are going to need to be taken to get you to the end where there is impact and to do that it involves a large number of players so you have to bring in holistically everybody who is impacted or can contribute to that pathway not just the people generating research but all of those impacted by it those funding it those using it so I think my two messages would be to plan meticulously from the start it may not work out like that and be prepared to be flexible but also to bring everybody on board and keep them on board and listen to them and act on their inputs all the way through
1: one of the i'd just like to introduce a new concept around power um and where the, and we talked about it from, from all of our perspectives, but. Um, how do we authentically engage the voices of lower middle income countries in the actual decisions of who gets funding? Um, there is an active uh, community and um, community engagement and inclusion um, program at NIHR. And I think w- what I would encourage is we ha- how do we, rather than just put, community members at an otherwise peer review scientific table, how do we actually create structures where those peer reviewers actually have decision-making, not just let's inform a decision by a majority of others at the table, but how do we actually create structures that actually provide power and, um, uh, to those community and patient and public engagement voices? So that's, that's the piece that I think um, is not on researchers, but it's on the funders and the partners to be able to th- authentically think through that piece.
3: I would very much, um, I think, reflect and add to what both Imelda and David have said there. I mean, I think if we think about funders as having ethical responsibilities for this conduct of research, I think recognising those power differentials and finding ways to account for them in the way that David describes, is probably the sort of the, the first task um, of ethical research. I think Imelda described very nicely you know, the sort of the starting points for a particular um, um, a particular project or a particular um, 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 scheme, I think what, if we think in terms of, of accounting for those power differentials and, and really taking action um, to start minimising them, um, I think that's, that's the role of funders and it's something that they, 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 they could be doing and it'd be great to see them developing it.
2: So very many thanks uh, for everything today, David, Catherine and Imelda. I think it's been a very enjoyable discussion. Um, don't forget the other podcasts and content available for download, and please keep the conversation going either on LinkedIn or Twitter with the hashtag #ImpactFrameworks. Thank you for listening to this
0: podcast. It's one of four in a series exploring different aspects of impact culture. Please return to the website to discover the others. Don't forget to tweet us your comments and questions to hashtag
2: ImpactFrameworks. Once again, thank you for listening.